The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management the following program is being brought to you on the voice america health and wellness channel for more information welcome to solutions and strategies with dr sean living the challenge our program is designed to offer solutions to those individuals with exceptional needs, plus families, professionals, and educators. Dr. Sean and his guests will share ideas that you can begin using immediately in order to promote a harmonious relationship and move forward. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sean Surface. Good morning, Voice America listeners. It's another beautiful day in the neighborhood. So happy to have you with us today. We've been really enjoying doing our shows. This is our fifth show, and we've had lots of good guests on. Um, I do hope that over the last week, you were able to reflect on some of your successes and were able to praise yourself at some point for taking on those challenges. You sometimes forget how many challenges you take on, but you're doing it on a daily basis, and you're really doing a good job. So give yourself a pat on the back for working as hard as you do. You know, over the last several weeks, we've been speaking about how the lives of individuals with disabilities can be supported. We started our conversations about exceptionalities by discussing the past history. We then had the honor of speaking to special education attorney Mark Woodsmall and his wife, Eva. Mark and Eva also discussed their home life and for the many wonderful things and difficult things that are going on in their lives. Mark and Evra have also opened up a vineyard in Temecula, and I haven't really talked that much about that. I think we talked about it a little bit on the show when they were on. But they opened up a vineyard in Temecula for individuals with disabilities to work at and take pride in their daily existence. It's very, very challenging to find work that people could be motivated in. This is the typical person. And so when you have a person with a disability who needs supports, you also need to set those supports up in place in their workplace or where they're existing in order for them to be successful. Um, I really want to have them on the show again in a few weeks to discuss the vineyard and maybe some future vocational planning for your kids. Um, we then had on for two weeks, Augie Jimenez and Lindsay Grizzle. Um, both are regional directors of total programs in our behavioral intervention programs and and why they got into the work themselves. We discussed some family collaboration. We went through the actual assessment process where Augie actually talked about how he begins an assessment and how he follows through with one to intervention and then uh, Lindsay spoke more about how she goes into the home to intervene, make sure that everybody's on the same page. Um, it's that family collaboration that's so important. But remember that I've talked about the idea of synthesis. And with synthesis, you often don't have an easy collaboration because everybody has ideas of what they're trying to do and how they're trying to work things out. 
and they may have different ideas and those kind of come into conflict with each other but if you can remember that you're working towards the same goal usually that synth synthesis can occur um, I want to really thank everybody for being on the show and for all the hard work that they do on a daily basis year after year Mark takes on some really hard cases to help kids um, we have a kind of a a tumultuous period right now in our education field. We don't know what's going to be occurring over the next couple of years, but changes are going to occur. We hope they are going to be for the better, but we have attorneys out there to assist us and to assist the legislature in order to make the best programming for, for kids possible. I do want to continue our discussion a little bit about the history of special education. And then I'm really excited today because I have a very good friend of mine and a co-worker for many years, Leanne Brown, who's the director of school services for Total Programs. She has a very extensive history in special education, and she has a lot to share with us. She and I have worked together for many, many years, uh, known each other, gosh, more than 25 years um, we have uh, a, a niece and a daughter that are friends with each other, and so we've known each other for quite a long time. We visited many, many, many classrooms together. We have uh, done workshops for school districts, so we've done a lot of work together, and I'm really excited to have her share her information with me. I do want to be able to cover some of the information that I started on on the first evening or the first day of the show. I was talking a lot about history and so if you remember I started talking about a man whose name was Barton Blatt and I'm going to bring up this story because I want to kind of talk about what how we got into special education and, in, and into the training programs and how we are in the world we are today which is much different than it was 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Um, so there was a guy named Barton Blatt. And Dr. Blatt was a social science professor at Ohio State University. And one year he decided to that he wanted to take a sabbatical. Now, when you take a sabbatical at the university level, you're supposed to work on something. You don't just take the time off. You work on a research project. You work on some activity. So what he decided that he wanted to do is he wanted to go into a local psychiatric hospital and see how people lived. Remember, he's a sociologist, so he kind of wanted to know how do people get along there? How do people, you know, interact? So what he did was he made arrangements to go visit the hospital and he hit a camera in his hat and he went about the facility taking pictures. Now, what he found were locked rooms rooms that were, would be locked for hours on end with people staring out a small little four-inch by four-inch window. He found people undressed, sitting in their own filth. He found quote-unquote recreation rooms, and these recreation rooms are just filled to stuffing capacity with people just standing around. He found no productive activities going on in the facilities. You would have these rooms that would be filled with people either clothed or unclothed. The people that were clothed were people that had more skill, were toilet trained. The people that were not as highly skilled and not toilet trained were kept naked throughout the day and then hosed down. The room and the people were just hosed down at the end of the day to get off any felt that might be on them. That kind of existence is mortifying. 
And so he wrote about it, and he brought this to the attention of parents, some newspaper people, other advocates for the disabled. And what would eventually come from his work was an act called the Wyatt-Stickney Act. And what that act insisted on was that people with disabilities not only were to be fed, clothed, and cleaned, which we call custodial work, but that it was society's obligation to try and train individuals in their facilities to have productive lives. So at the Ohio Hospital, they started creating programs. Now, yeah, they had a lot of pressure on them. Now, they had pressure on them from the newspapers. They had pressure on them from parents. And now they have this law that they had to put into place. So they started creating programs for educational purposes. It actually started off as a shoe shining and shoe cleaning um, workshop. And then it's made its way up to various vocational programs, making different things, putting together different things. And this, these programs were existing finally in the hospital. And Dr. Blatt is a hero to many of us because he's, he was willing to go and expose a very dark side of human existence, something that not many of us are able to take on, something that not many of us even want to talk about. We see pictures, we see things, uh, people with disabilities being mistreated, and we feel so bad inside, but often we don't know as the typical individual like what to do and how to change things. So this is where the legislature is so important. This is where laws like the Wyatt-Stickney Act were so important. As years went on, parents wanted their more and more for their kids with disabilities, including their local being at their local school sites rather than always being at, housed or marginalized away from society. Often it was that people with disabilities were put into group homes or put into hospital settings or large facilities, and that's where they were educated. They weren't educated in their local homes, excuse me, in their local schools, you know, which was close to their local home. And when you're not educated in your local home, and, and excuse me, I said it again, in your local school, you don't have as many friends, your community doesn't know you, people don't know who you are. The only way to become part of your community is to exist within your community. And so if you're being shipped to a school 20 miles, 30 miles away, if you're having to live elsewhere, you never become part of your community. So some years went by, and in 1974, Public Law 94-142 came into existence. And that allowed for individuals with disabilities schooling from the ages of 6 to 18, or basically first grade through high school. Though in our land of disabilities, that leaves out a lot of kids because after age 18, most kids are going to go off to college or something and often our kids are unable to attend a college setting. So what happens after age 21 or excuse me, after age 18? And very often kids need infant stimulation programs where right from the get-go, they need something. Now in 1986, it was actually increased to 3 to 21. So three-year-olds could start attending preschool programs that were federally funded. Um, but in 1997, we saw the biggest change, which went from birth to 22 years. And this, again, allowed for the infant stimulation programs all the way through post-high school pre-vocational programming. Um, these laws allowed for very specific programs to be developed 
to assist and educate our disabled youth and to put forth programs in the universities to teach teachers and other support specialists to work in school settings with kids with various exceptionalities. Um, I'm happy because in a couple weeks, I'm really pleased to say that we're going to have on the show doctors Randy Campbell and Michelle Wallace, who both are professors at Cal State Los Angeles. Randy Campbell's been at the university for over 30 years. Uh, Dr. Wallace has been there for, I think, about a decade. And both work very hard in training individuals with to do applied behavior analysis, they train teachers, they train school psychologists, they train school counselors. So it's going to be nice to hear about the university training, but they're doing all that university training and training the behavior specialists and school counselors and psychologists so that they can go out there and help the, the kids that, that require help and, and adults that require help. I just got a referral yesterday on a 46-year-old woman who believes that um, she may have autism and wants to figure things out. You know, it's very interesting to see how families deal with things in different ways. And what I have found is that the majority of the families Yes, they're dealing with challenges, but at the same time, they also have some great joys, and they really do love the, their children, and they only want the best for them, just like any parent wants the best for their kid. So why would a parent of a disabled child want anything different? And why would we set things up with lower ex, uh, um, ex, I'm sorry, lower expectations? Why would we think that just because a person with dis- has a disability that the parent doesn't want the world for them. I'd like to read a poem to you uh, by a special needs mom. It's called The Look Inside. You may think us special moms have it pretty rough. We have no choice. We just manage life when things get really tough. We've made it through the days we thought we'd never make it through. We even impressed our own selves with all that we can do. We've gained patience beyond measure, love we never dreamed of giving. We worry about the future, but we know this quote-unquote special life is worth living. We have bad days and hurt sometimes, but we hold our heads up high. We feel joy and pride and thankfulness more often than we cry. For our kids, we aren't just super moms, no. We do much more. We're cheerleaders, nurses, therapists who don't walk out the door. We handle rude remarks, unkind stares with dignity and grace. Even though the pain they can bring cannot be erased. Therapies and treatment routes are a lot of us to digest, a lot for us to digest. We don't know what the future holds but give our kids our best. None of us can be replaced, so we don't get many breaks. It wears us out, but to help our kids, we'll do whatever it takes. We are selfless, not by choice, you see. Our kids just have more needs. We're not out to change the world, but want to plant some seeds. We want our kids accepted. That's really is our aim. When we look at them, we just see kids. We hope you'll see the same. And that concept of when we look at our them, we just see kids. 
This is the main drive in total programs. The main drive in our program is to make sure that people understand individuals with disabilities, that they interact with them on a daily basis, that they see people within their community with disabilities, and they begin to understand that person as a person. Any parent wants to see their child successful. So they're going to want to see them go through preschool programs, elementary programs, middle school and secondary high school programs, have the supports that they need, go on to, if possible, college programs, go into vocational work, have a purposeful life. Why would anybody want anything different? When we look at them, we just see kids. We hope you'll do the same. That was by April Vernon. She's the special needs mom that wrote that poem. And she understands that her job is tough. It's that bodhisattva that I've been talking about, that warrior helper. She knows that, yeah, it's tough, but the child is so special and so wonderful that that is their kid. And that kid has never been any different, has never known any different. They are who they are, not who we want them to be. We will build up their skills so that they can build their potential to the highest point possible. But we're not there to say that there's something bad about them, that they deserve any less than anybody else. They deserve as much education and as much attention as possible towards their own success. So this is why we have special education programs special education teachers, classroom paraeducators, support personnel, such as speech pathologists that come to help, physical therapists that come to help in the classroom, occupational therapists that come, orientation and mobility therapists that help with the visually impaired. All these folks assist people towards kids being successful. And when we, it's already time for our first break, but when we return, we'll be speaking with Leanne Brown about her experiences in special education and the joys and challenges that she's gone through in her job and goes through on a daily basis. So we'll be back in a couple minutes. Thanks a lot for listening. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms and you're on the cusp of a new journey. Breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuso to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Life has its joys and challenges. At Total Programs, we can assist you with the challenges and show you that solutions are possible when good strategies are put into place. 
At Total Programs, we understand how difficult your day can be. And our goal is to assist your family in having a supportive, safe, and successful environment where love and joy can reign. We can design programs and strategies to bring you the success, safety, and support that you desire for your home, school, and community. Call 1-866-54-TUTOR or visit TotalPrograms.org. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. We'd love to encourage your participation in the program. Call into 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to seansurface at totalprograms.org. Now, back to this week's show. Well, welcome back. As I always say, I hope you were able to get yourself a little cup of coffee or get yourself comfy for the rest of our show. Um, it's been kind of exciting to do the show and have different listeners from all over the place. Uh, we have listeners in Japan. We had a listener in Iran. We have a listener in um, the Philippines. And we actually have several in Europe. And so it's been kind of exciting just to see who our listening base is. So we're really spreading out. Um, a, a parent from the Philippines actually sent me something last week that I want to read you. And these were quotes from the teacher that their child was working with, who had never worked with disabilities before, didn't understand, this child had a learning disability, didn't understand it at all, and the child was having some difficulty in school, and she was about seven at the time. Um, okay, so it starts off, this is to inform you that your child misbehaved in school today. Your child did not finish her writing activity. Your child did not finish her periodical exams. Your child did not take the test. Your child missed her math lessons and she stayed outside the whole time due to her misbehavior. This is to inform you that your child is not doing her math activities. Her math book is not at school. She never remembers it. Your child shouted back at her math teacher today. Your child stepped on her art project because she was mad. Your child misbehaved again. Your child had to be sent home because she was so distracting in class. For the last five years, her daughter Carla has been in five different schools. The most painful moments were when she was told all over again by school authorities that she could no longer accommodate her difficult child. Quote, unquote, her difficult child. Those were the most distressing moments that any mother could feel, and she could not shield her child from the rejection, from being unwanted and unaccepted. I recalled the pain when I was told that my child could not join the class field trip simply because her teachers did not want to be responsible for her when she tantrums, that she could have, and that she could not have her first communion because her behavior was still immature, that she needed to find another school which could take her special case, that could take a special case like her. So I took the responsibility of being a mom to a special child. 
I was at a crossroads of my life when I decided to shift my graduate major in educational psychology to take a course of special education with the single-minded purpose of knowing and understanding what my child was going through and with the hope that somehow and somewhere along the way, I could ease some of the bumpy roads in her journey. She was later diagnosed in a with acquired attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, by developmental pediatricians, and eventually got the support she needed in a classroom that would support her needs. It's very, very difficult for a parent to hear such things being said about their kid. And, you know, many of our parents have complete fear of their phone, that when their phone rings, what's it going to be now? Who's it going to be calling? What's, What's the newest problem? And so what we try and do is alleviate some of the stress, help with some of the behavioral issues, but also get teachers and parents and care providers to understand the child. And that understanding actually reduces a lot of stress for the teacher. I'm really happy this morning that we're having a conversation with Leanne Brown. Leanne Brown is my Director of School Services, and again, has worked with me for many years. So good morning, Leanne, and we're happy to have you. Good morning, Dr. Sean. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we've had a chance to work together on a lot of cases, haven't we? Yes, we have. <laughs> Over the Quite years, we've, yes, we've seen a lot, and what our goal has always been is to kind of go in as a team of teacher and psychologist and work out programming and work out what issues there may be that are hindering the teacher or the kid in any way. So I just kind of wonder, you know, how did you've been doing this a long time in a lot of different places. How did you get into this work? How did you get interested in working with individuals with disabilities? Well, I think for me, the interest um, in individuals with disabilities started at a very young age. Um, I remember even as a kid, always kind of being drawn to individuals with disabilities, um, and it's interesting, um, the poem that you read, because I always just saw them as people um, and treated them mm-hmm. as people, didn't really treat them as somebody with a disability. Um, so that kind of led me in my college years. Um, I worked in a rehabilitation lab um, where we did, I guess, like, therapeutic exercise with adults Mm -hmm. with disabilities. Uh Um, And then that led me to um, work actually as an aide in um, a specialized school. I started an infant STEM program and then moved my way up and actually became a teacher there. Um, And then I taught for several years. um, And then I came to work for you. So I've always kind of just loved this population and really focused on what they can do instead of what they're not doing. Well, that is exactly the reason why I begged you to come on full-time, I think now near enough 10 years ago, because I wanted somebody who would see kids as kids first, not as disabilities first, and be able to see that even though there's challenges going on, that there are processes that can take place that can help this classroom teacher and help the family. So what, what are some of those processes that you go through when you're trying to help a teacher? Um, well, the first thing we do um, when we, whenever we're asked to go into a school site is um, really talk to the teacher um, and kind of get her insight or, or his insight um, into what they think is going um, on because really our goal is to work collaboratively 
Um, and even though we may not initially agree on some of the reasons um, why the student may be um, acting the way they are, um, it's really important to get that buy-in from the teacher um, and really let them know that you're there to help and you're on, you know, and you're there to support them, um, however, whatever that may look like. Um, and then from there, really looking at the student as an individual. Um, so everything is individualized to that student's need. Um, so it, we may do a little assessment piece. We may use um, the tools that have already been um, in place and kind of tweak them a little bit. Um, but it really is working collaboratively as a team with the members of the classroom to support that student. Yeah, so often we come into a classroom situation and there's a lot of different issues going on, but the teacher wants us to focus on the the one kid, but we see actually a bigger global issue in the classroom. How do you deal with getting that teacher to understand or getting that buy-in? I mean, we might be there to collaborate, but the teacher is going to feel like, hey, I know what I'm doing. I've been doing this a long time. You're just here to help that kid. You're not necessarily here to help me. How do you get them to understand that we are there to help both the kid and them? And the, Yeah, sometimes um, what's been effective for me is to get in there and do the work. So mm-hmm. I may go in right. and I just may work with that student um, and, you know, use the strategies that I know are effective and tell that student's having success. And then once they see that, oh, wow, these, you know, these strategies do work, um, then the buy-in is, is, comes a little quicker. Um, so I sure. do a lot of modeling. Um, and sometimes I'll just say, hey, you know, let me take over for a minute. Because um, teachers are stressed. I mean, when things aren't running smoothly in your classroom, it's very stressful. Right. <laughs> and it gives, well, what, you know, what are ahead. some of the reasons why it's so stressful? Um, I think because there's not a lot of success. So when you don't see a lot of success, you know, every day when you walk into that classroom, you're thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, what's going to go wrong today? Um, and that's kind of what's in the forefront of um, a lot of teachers Mind yeah. like, oh my gosh, you know, this is not going to run smoothly today. And so they walk in already stressed because they know it's not going to run smoothly. Yeah, and the pressure that's on them to keep everybody calm and stable and, and in a learning mode is very difficult when you've got multiple people staring at you. You've got principals, assistant principals, parents, people from the outside coming into your room. So you can feel very judged. What are some of the things that you hear most often from from teachers? What, what do they talk to you mostly about? Um, they talk to me mostly about um, about how some how they don't they just don't know what to do with the students, um, and um, some of them are very um, appreciative when I arrive, and some of them do have that mindset of oh I've been doing this forever I know what to do. Um, I feel very fortunate in my career that I had an excellent mentor early on who taught me that if a student isn't learning the way we're teaching, then we need to change the way we're teaching to match the student's need. Um, so that's something that I, I try to, you know, foster in, in teachers who are kind of stuck in the mindset of, I've done this forever, I know what I'm doing, um, and um, I gently 
just remind them that, well, the student's not getting it this way. Have you thought about, you know, maybe presenting it that way? That individualization is so difficult when you've got 14 kids in the class or more. Usually special education kids or classrooms are going to be under 20. But you might have, you know, classrooms that have multiple paraeducators in them also. And as a teacher, you're trying to not only have a lesson plan for all the kids, but then individualize. How do you get those paraeducators involved also how do we get them to buy have ownership in the program so that they see themselves as a equal part to the learning environment and not that it's all on the teacher and vice versa that the teacher doesn't just say oh like we'll walk into a lot of classrooms and the and quite often we'll say oh how's Johnny we'll go to the teacher how's Johnny doing I don't know why don't you ask their aid and right. when the aide knows about the kid, but the te- teacher doesn't really, how do we get all these people involved? And why do we think that they're not involved in the first place? Well, to get them all involved, um, as a teacher, it's a lot of planning on your part um, to mm-hmm. figure out, again, you know, what's your, what's your overall lesson? You know, what are your overall lessons for the day? And then really individualizing and tailoring those to each of your students and then sharing that information with your aides and saying, okay, today, um, you know, this is what we're going to work on with this student. This is what it's going to look like. Um, so it is a lot of um, responsibility put on the teacher to manage the staff, the support staff she has in the room, along with the students. Um, one of the things. Think, go ahead. One of the th- one of the things that I've noticed is that because. You can have classrooms that have multiple issues going on. Maybe you have behavioral challenges. You have learning challenges. You have all these different things going on, and they're changing quite often. They could change hour to hour, definitely day to day, where one day the kid's doing okay, the next day he's not doing okay. One hour he's fine, the next hour he's completely falling apart. And so teachers start to worry about that situation occurring and so they don't do a lot of planning and kind of go with this, I'm going to go with the flow throughout the day and and meet each need as it comes up, which is a philosophy that you can practice. However, I have a philosophy, which I mentioned on the first or second show, which is if you're worrying about something, the opposite of worrying is planning. And if you can plan what you're going to do throughout your day, throughout your week, general themes, you're much less likely to be as worried or as concerned. And we have seen teachers that have completely broken down to the point of not being able to come to work anymore because they're so sickly and so stressed out. I love the fact that your idea of training is modeling that you go in and not say, okay, do this, do this, do this. You go in and you do it. You do the thing so that the person can see what the uh, uh, technique looks like, what the uh, uh, activities you might introduce to the kid, what technologies, as we may call it, you use. When did you learn 
Or how did you learn that that was a better route to go than just handing a behavior plan and going over or a lesson plan and just go? A lot of mentor teachers will just go over lesson plans or go over plans. When did you learn to model? I mean, you're gorgeous, so that would be one reason why you learned to model. <laughs> oh, stop <laughs> it, stop it. Um, but really, um, in all seriousness. No, in all seriousness, um, for me, um, when I started working, I taught um, for El Monte City School Districts, and um, when I was hired there, um, I was kind of hired as, um, I guess you would call it a master teacher, so I, there were a lot of younger or more inexperienced teachers um, on my school site, and so we set up committees um, and... I would go in and work with them, and I learned really on that you can't just tell them what to do um, because a lot of time there's not that follow-through if, if you're just telling them what to do. So I would go in, and I would take over their classroom for a little while um, and demonstrate um, these different technologies and, and how to implement these strategies. And then we'd also um, have meetings after school where we'd do a lot of role-play um, in the classroom um, without the students. And so the staff would pretend to be the students and we'd do a lot of role play. So we did a lot of training like that. And, and for me, I learned really early on that it's more effective for them to see what you're doing than just talk about it. Um, and you and I have known this from going in and doing workshops, that you can go in and do a workshop for a district, but there has to be that follow-up to kind of and show them how does it really look in the classroom? How do you tweak it to make it, you know, this, this idea that we presented in a workshop really work for the students that are in their classroom? So yeah. it's, it's both the learning piece and then the demonstration piece. Um, and we want to so. give people the time to learn and understand the, uh, the ideas and techniques that we're trying to demonstrate and show them. But... We also have to realize that they, they're tired, they're worn out, they may not be able to implement everything immediately. And by doing this model that we've done, which is give you know, a day's workshop or a couple days workshop and then give them a little bit of time to think about it and then come back to them and watch them trying to implement it and helping them to implement it really is the only way that I have found and that you and I have found that will work with the school district. Because quite often, again, it's the paraeducators that are given the majority of the responsibility and that responsibility holds very heavy on them. I, I want to continue that conversation. Believe it or not, it's time for another break. But when we come back from break, I want to continue the conversation about how we get teachers and paraeducators on board with our with programs that will help them to be successful. So we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Life has its joys and challenges. At Total Programs, we can assist you with the challenges and show you that solutions are possible when good strategies are put into place. At Total Programs, we understand how difficult your day can be. And our goal is to assist your family in having the supportive, safe, and successful environment where love and joy can reign. 
we can design programs and strategies to bring you the success, safety, and support that you desire for your home, school, and community. Call 1-866-54-TUTOR or visit TotalPrograms.org. We all have challenges each and every day. How do you relax and live in a calm state? On Chaos to Calm, we introduce you to the concept of Ren Shui, a path to feeling calmer and happier. Listen Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean, Living the Challenge. We'd love to encourage your participation in the program. Call into 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to seansurface at totalprograms.org. Now, back to this week's show. Uh, welcome back. We've been enjoying a conversation with Leanne Brown. Leanne, welcome back to our third segment of the show. And we were talking about how we provide teachers with support. Um, You know, quite often we get called into different kinds of school settings too. It's not just the public school. And they're usually kind of tough cases where we have a student of ours that we work with maybe in the afternoon and on the weekends or in the evenings, and we're doing pretty well with that person, but at their school site, they're having tremendous difficulty or in other environments. So what do we do, Leanne, to to share the information from one environment to, to the other? How do we do that? How would you go about doing it? Kids doing pretty well in our program, but not so well at school. Yes, um, collaboration with the whole team. So we may sit down and have um, what we call a clinic meeting. Well, we'll bring in um, all of the professionals that are working in the different settings um, and just talk about what's working for that student, um, you know, what their successes are, and then the areas that they may need um, a little more support. And then, you know, what are we going to do across the board so that there's, there's a continuum um, of interventions that are, are not just being used in school and then not being used after school or may just be u- being used after school and not being used in school so that it's, it's a more holistic approach for the students. What we find so often is that what we're trying to do is reinforce the individual or reward the individual for all the good stuff that they're doing all the time. And what we see quite often out there by a lot of different people, paraeducators that work for us, paraeducators that work for the school, teachers, parents, that they get angry at the kid, that they believe that disciplining the child or applying some kind of level of punishment 
to the child is going to set them, quote unquote, set them straight. What do you think of that concept? <laughs> well, as uh, I, I'm a big person on data, and as the data would show that those strategies um, may have a quick result with punishment, but it's not a lasting result. And it doesn't teach the student um, anything. So it doesn't teach the student what to do. It only teaches the student what not to do. Yeah, and we um, see that quite often, though, that everybody's building their programs around what not to do. You don't do this in the class. You don't do the no yelling. I remember going to a school site with you, and up on the board it said, no yelling, no fighting, no fussing. And I thought, yes. fussing? What is fussing? Fussing usually, to me, if I'm going to fuss about something, it means that I'm like unhappy with the situation in a sense I'm going to try and advocate for myself. So what I saw on the board there was don't touch, don't talk, and don't ever advocate for yourself. How do we get people to realize that the punishment model, as you said, has a quick response and... It may work temporarily, but it doesn't teach the person what they need to do. How do we get that concept across to people? It, it, you know, sometimes it's just spending a lot of time in the classroom, um, talking with the teachers, showing them um, something different. The concept of um, reinforcement, I mean, I've had many experiences going into a classroom um, and the teacher would tell me, I remember one specifically where the teacher told me that um, the student's reward for completing all their work was going to be gardening because he needed to learn gardening skills. And I remember sitting there thinking, he doesn't like gardening, so how is that reinforcement? So sometimes this concept of reinforcement, the staff don't understand, and it's, it's sitting down and, and really talking with them and teaching them um, about these concepts. Um, and sometimes they do get into, teachers do get into situations where they're correcting the student so much that they're not praising the student for what they're doing right. Um, and sometimes we'll, we'll take data on that and, and just show it to the teacher. Um, so for, you know, they may say, you know, 15 corrections or 15, you know, um, reprimands per day and only two, you know, positive or, or reinforcing statements. Well, there are these programs that we see that are called differential reinforcement or the omission of behaviors, DRO cases, where the whole plan is built around reinforcing the omission or the absence of a behavior. So if you don't hit for a half an hour, you get a point. If you don't scream out for a half an hour, you get a cookie. If you don't fuss, you get to go and do something you want to do. By teaching in a DRO fashion, what we tend to do is teach a lot about what you're not doing and put the person into this vacuum of not knowing what to do, but knowing what they're not supposed to do. And that double negative of not doing what you're not supposed to do doesn't really help the teacher or the parent or the kid in the future because then their head is always about what I call problem admiration. What being able to describe the problem, and I think that that happens, Leanne, when, they, when the parent or the care provider or the teacher feels alone, when they feel like they're having to do all this and nobody's supporting them, nobody's paying attention to them, so they need to demonstrate to the outside world all the 
hard stuff that's happening rather than demonstrating to themselves all the positive things. So you can come into the classroom and you can show them some positive interactions, but sometimes it kind of ticks them off, right? I mean, they sometimes don't really yes. want, yeah, I mean, they, yes. they, see, they see, you know, you as Ann Sullivan coming in as the miracle worker, and yeah, you do this great work. We were talked about this last week with like Dumbo's feather, you know, and you're the feather, but as soon as you leave, the same carry through is not there, the follow through, and they go back to the problem admiration, they go back to the punishment cycles. And it's so important for us to let teachers see how something positive can happen and count all their small successes. You you said it, they tend to remember all the things that went, went wrong and not remember much of what went the way they wanted to. How do you... How do you remind teachers of the stuff? I mean, it's hard to do it in the midst of the classroom. So you talked about a clinic meeting. What is that? Talk, tell me a little bit more about how you would run that. A clinic meeting. So we would um, get all the parties together, and sometimes that we may hold one just at the school with the teacher or the parent. Um, if there's a paraprofessional that's working um, with the student, be that a one-on-one, or maybe there's a paraprofessional that interacts with the student um, the majority of the day. And we sit down and we talk about um, the student. We talk about um, what their goals are, um, you know, what, what um, you know, pro-social um, responses that we're working on with that student and how effective those are being. Um, mm-hmm. and Reminding and the, them constantly of the good work that they're doing so that they don't forget about it because it may be very fleeting, right? I mean, it might be one second of good stuff and four hours of challenging stuff. Right. And that's, and that's where collecting data is so important um, because when you have the data to show that the student, you know, they may f- not feel like the student is improving, but when you show them, you know, the data and you show them on a graph that, yes, they are improving, it may be slow, but they are improving, um, and that's something to get excited about. Um, and yeah, this that is why work is paying off, that it may be a slow progression. Um, and, that's, and that's another thing that happens, too, is when you go in and you're working with the teacher and you implement a new strategy, um, in the beginning, it's slow. And so, you know, the teacher sometimes says, oh, it's not working. Um, but you haven't given the student enough time to learn the new skill. And so sometimes that's a hard buy-in piece, too, is they expect that, oh, well, I did it once. Why, aren't they, why haven't their behavior changed? <laughs> well, that's a big one, actually, because so often with our kids, especially our kids with developmental disabilities and specifically autism, where they will be able to do something really well one day, but for one reason or another, often anxiety comes into place and they can't do it the next day, but it seems like they're willingly or willfully not doing something. Like they don't want to do it on purpose just to tick off the teacher or just to to be difficult. When really on that particular day, they may be too anxious or too worked up to do that thing because there's so many variables that are involved every, every day. In fact, I'm going to invite you right now to continue our conversation next week and to be on the show again, Leanne, because I want to discuss next week anxiety and autism and some of the things that we can put into place 
in order to reduce that level of anxiousness. Because last week, uh, Lindsay and Augie and I were talking about behavior. And one of the things we were talking about was the idea of response classes of behavior, that things build up. That it's not just this one big explosion. That if you can catch things, like if we know that something makes a kid anxious, what are one of the things that we can do, uh, Leanne, in order to assist anybody who might feel some anxiety around what's going to happen during the day? What is one thing we might do to help them? A simple solution is to write down their schedule. And then depending on the level of the student, that can be in picture format, it can be in word format, it can be something that's just simply written down down on a piece of paper, kind of like how we may make a grocery list when we go to the store. Um, Just a list of those different things that are going to happen during the day so that they know when things are coming up and what they can expect next. And what is that? What, what would be, it's not worry, it's the opposite, right? It's the planning. It's the planning. That we, mm-hmm. Right. And so next week, what I want to be able to, to discuss is some of those specifics that we might use to reduce anxiety. I'll talk a lot about environmental changes and, uh, and, and maybe even some medical issues, but I would like us to continue the conversation discussing some of the specifics because... It is the data. It's that data-driven program that shows you what's working and what's not working. How do you get staff to shift from that focus of everything's a problem to, hey, there's some uh, uh, solutions going on out here? Having them a, a big part, having involving them in the process right from the beginning. Right. Um, so even when you're generating solutions or generating um, the technologies and the intervention piece, having them part of that and really getting their input because they're going to be the ones ultimately implementing it. And if and if it's if it's something that they can't implement, then we have to we have to tweak it so that they can actually implement it. Right. I mean, if they're not involved right from the start, they're going to see the program as your program or somebody else's, not what they're involved with. I'm so into empowering the the person to be able to not only work with a kid when they're in a challenge, but be able to see their own successes so that when they are doing this hard work, they can look back and go, hey, you know, I we struggled a lot today. But we were able to get from the classroom out into the, the yard, and he was actually able to stay out there and play some handball for a while. He played on his own. He played with me as the paraeducator. Maybe next time I'll get him to be able to be with some other kids, too. But by putting out some tools and letting that kid know, okay, hey, you know, the, the, uh, uh, I know you like recess. Recess is coming, but first we have to finish tabletop activities. First we have to finish our math or first we have to finish this. By planning with the person, with the paraeducator, with the teacher, we involve them in the kids program. Thus, they are very motivated to show others how they are successful at their program and what they're doing. Because again, we put a lot of of, uh, uh, responsibility on them, but then uh, we all we commonly don't praise the good stuff. We commonly 
get on them for the kid acting out. And I know you've seen that a lot yourself. Yes, yes. And that's that's an important um, piece that you just brought up too, is just like the student needs that, that, that reinforcement and that social, you know, praise, the staff also do. So, you know, when things are going well or when they've implemented maybe a new strategy, I give the staff praise too. Um, so we'll, you know, I give them thumbs up. I tell them they're doing a great job and, and I may just, whisk, you know, get behind them, put my hand on their shoulder and whisper in their ear, you're doing a great job, keep it right. up, you're doing everything then- you're supposed to do. And that's what they need. They need that so badly. I want us to continue this conversation next week. So if you would, I would love to have you on again. Are you willing to come on to talk some more next week with us? I am willing. It would be a pleasure. Because we're at the end of our show. So remember all that on Strategies and Solutions, taking on the challenge with Dr. Sean, we're about your success and know that each day can be the new future you dream of having in your life. So we'll see you next time, Leanne. We're so happy to have you on today. See you next time, everybody. Blessings out there to you all. Thanks so much for listening to Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean. Living the challenge. Be sure to join us again next Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a great week.